Hello, my friends, and welcome to another Robcast. This is episode 180, and it's a new year. So, new episodes, uh, and this episode is a new sermon, and it's called You and Your Bags of Gold. <laughs> or maybe you could say it like, You and Your Bags of Gold. Or uh, maybe you could say it, You and Your Bags of Gold. Oh, <laughs> uh, there's a big swell in the ocean right now, so the waves are pumping. So your man just got out of the ocean, and I'm a little uh, buzzed. You know what I'm saying? A little loopy. Uh, things are, you know, things are cooking. So, um, oh, but new year, new sermons, new lots of things. Um, we started a new tour. I started a tour called the Holy Shift Tour last week. The first two nights were Tucson and Phoenix, and to all of you in Tucson who came out to 191 Tool and all of you who came out to the Crescent Ballroom in Phoenix. Seriously, good times. Um, and always when you start a new tour, there's always just like, what is this thing? Is it going to, you know, is it going to work? Because <laughs> if it bombs, we're going to bomb spectacularly. Um, but it was so, so much fun. And now the tour's rolling. So this Friday night, San Diego, I'll be at the North Park Observatory. I was there two and a half years ago for Everything is Spiritual Tour. And then the following night, Santa Barbara. And I've never done a tour stop in Santa Barbara. So that's all coming uh, this week. And then a couple weeks after that, we'll be in Texas. And I've never had an opener, but I'm Pete Rollins has come out with me. And so those of you, those of you who haven't heard Pete Rollins live, you seriously, it's an experience. And uh, so Texas, da uh, San Antonio... Houston, Dallas, Austin, first Austin night um, sold out, so they added a second one, and all that, all those details, and then from there, we're going all over the place. First leg tickets are now at, available. You can get them at uh, robbell.com, so we got that going. Oh, and then next Largo show, February 5th, and there is this um, poet, mystic, revolutionary writer uh, named John Philip Newell. I don't even know how to describe him, but he, oh man, he's like, he's like as close as I get to a guru. Um, that guy has so um, impacted me and moved me and shaped me. Anyway, um, John Philip Newell will be joining me at my Largo show for part of it. And um, by the way, I interviewed him, Robcast episode 75 and episode 133 are with John Philip Newell. Um, I'll be doing a bunch of things February 5th at my Largo show, but one of the things will be I get to interview him again. And every time, it's seriously, it's it, that, that man, man, oh man. So anyway, that's coming up. Tickets are at Largo-LA.com. And then, uh, oh yeah, one more thing, workshop, the Something to Say workshops. I did two of them last fall. These are for communicators. So whatever it is that you're uh, trying to say, trying to make, um, it's a smaller group. And I did one in October, one in November, but now um, we put some dates up for the next one, which is end of March. And you bring whatever you're working on. So, I mean, every, the people who have activists, um, people with websites, writers, novelists, um, People in politics, people in health, children's book authors, preachers, like it is, 
the group of people who shows up, it's unbelievable. And then basically people give like a really, really brief, like a 30 second minute. Here's what I'm working on. Here's how I'm stuck. And then I dive into it and I do my thing with them. Um, and we get them unstuck. And I'm telling you, it's two days of magic. Anyway, those dates are up for the next um, Something to Say workshop. And as always, would love to see you all at any of those things. But now, sermon time. Um, and this sermon is called You. <laughs> I just like saying it. You and your, you and your bags of gold. So what I'm going to do is I want to take you through a story that Jesus told. And I want to essentially, it's almost like put a bunch of lines in the water, like take you through it, take you through a, a particular reading of this parable, and then um, we'll give it some space and we'll see if it does to you the kinds of things that's been doing to me. And I mean, with all these episodes, or actually any of the work, books, tours, etc., it's like uh, it goes to work on me. And it does something to me over a period of time. And then there's this moment when it switches and I begin to think, okay, how would I articulate this? How, how would I lay this out so that other people, it's not just would see what I saw, but would see whatever beyond that. Do you know what I mean? Like that you would have your own reading that would take you into all sorts of interesting places. So this parable, um, I'm going to do, I'm going to read a version from Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter 25. Jesus tells this parable. And by the way, those of you who anything involving the Bible, you just sort of twitch, like you break out in hives. Hold on now. I get it. But let's uh, just go with me on the reading of this, especially this parable, because I know a number of people have this parable has, they maybe had some familiarity with this in the past, and it didn't mean anything helpful. So just stay with me, and what we'll do is we'll just go a layer, and then we'll go another layer, and then we'll go another layer, and we'll see what happens. So uh, Matthew 25, Jesus says, again, it will be like a man. By the way, the again means that this is connected with what comes before it and what comes after it. So there's like a, there's like a, a larger context here. We'll get back to that in a second. So the parable is, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now, uh, this phrase, bags of gold, sometimes it gets translated talents. So this is sometimes called the parable of the talents. Other times it's translated coins. So it's called the parable of the coins. I just think bags of gold. You know what I mean? Like you would choose bags of gold too, right? So the translation I'm reading from um, takes this word and uh, it does bags of gold, which I don't know, it just works. And also important to note that's a ma it's a massive sum of money. And lots of different interpreters have tried to figure out how much that would be in our dollars. Um, but hundreds of thousands, a million, a couple million, it's a bonkers amount of money. We'll come back to that as well, because that's important to understanding the story. A man uh, is going on a trip, and he entrusts his wealth to his servants, and he gives them each ridiculous amounts of money. Um, and, well, let's just keep going. Then he went on his journey. 
The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. I'm turning the page. An actual page and an actual book. Uh, His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. I gained two more. So the master does the same thing with the five-bag dude with the two-bag dude. Well done. All right. Come share in your master's happiness. By the way, the whole thing is driven by the master's happiness. We'll come back to that as well. Um, Then you have the man who comes in. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came in. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? There's a question mark at the end of that. Very significant for the reading of the parable. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For those who have will be given more and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) Oh man, how's that for an opener? Um, and if you're thinking, man, that sounds like judgment. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It actually is a parable about judgment. We'll get to that in a minute. Well, because I think it's a different kind of judgment than the kind of judgment that people usually think it's the kind of judgment. So, uh, man, where do we even start? First, for many people, the reading of this parable has been, hey, um, This is a parable about what you've been given and what you do with what you've been given. And so you better do something or you're going to end up getting cast out to a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it becomes a very rousing, uh, whatever it is that you have, you should do something with it or you're going to get judged for not doing anything with it. Um, So the moral then becomes try harder or it's every day, bro, or who wants it or something along those lines. Um, the thing about that reading is it, it can be incredibly inspiring in the moment, and people will hear speeches and motivational um, talks and sermons that are like, basically, you need to try harder or you're going to get judged. And in the moment, people can get really excited. There's like millions of dollars of books that are sold that are basically um, do more. And so I would just begin with, is that, is, is that the depth of the parable? Is that the best Jesus can do? Like, hey, you better do something or, it's, or you're going to get judged. Now, others, um, some readings are about how they each are given different amount of bags of gold. So uh, they each have different talents. So I've literally heard people say, well, this is because some people are five talent people and some people are two talent people. And you just have to be, you know, some people are more talented than others. And the whole thing is you just have to make peace that you're not a very talented person. And that's just, you just have to accept that. 
<laughs> really, seriously, that's 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 what Jesus is uh, doing here. You, you you essentially you have to believe that Jesus has more going on here than sanctified motivational speaking. Are you with me on this? Um, because it's a weird, weird story, um, and the story ends with judgment, but it's a different kind of judgment. So, a couple of guidelines for a weird story like this. First, the outrageousness and the ridiculousness of the story is a clue, right? It's like a tip. It's like a hint. It's like a wink and a nod that there's probably something going on just below the surface. Uh, uh, An owner, a master, boss man, who's going on a journey and he entrusts all of his wealth to his servants, and he gives them ridiculously massive sums of money, and then he just goes away. And so actually, for the majority of the story, the master is somewhere else. Boss man is somewhere else. And the parable is about what these people do while boss man is away, and then boss man comes home and settles accounts. So I would just begin with the truths of this parable are probably just below the surface. The opening is so strange that the thing that Jesus is doing here, and and you see this again and again and again, the truth here, the thing that starts to work on you is probably going to come in the side door. And then let's back up just a bit and look at the larger flow. This is Matthew 25. And so Jesus is, this is the end of the gospel of Matthew, and he's about to die. He's about to be executed because it's the original, original rage against the machine. He's essentially calling out the injustice of a larger system, and he's going to be executed as an enemy of the state. And he knows this. He's headed to Jerusalem this whole way where there's going to be this epic confrontation. He's going to be killed. He's going to die. Now, when you look at the gospels, there's this really interesting thing that happens because in the beginning of the Gospels, he's doing what all of your basic Messiah sort of characters would do. He's gathering large crowds. He's feeding hungry people. He's healing the blind, people who can't walk, have encounters with him, and then they can walk. And so in the beginning, he's doing what your fairly typical Savior Messiah sort of character would do, gather large crowds and do miraculous things and have everybody be in awe. But then he starts telling his disciples, hey, uh, ultimately you realize where this is headed. Now, if you're one of his disciples or you're in the crowd, they want to make him a king so he can lead them in rebellion against Rome. So they have very specific ideas of what a leader looks like. And so when he's like, you know where this is headed, you're assuming his disciples and the people around him would be like, yeah, we know exactly where this is headed. You are going to win and we're going to be like your cabinet members. You literally have discussions among his disciples, arguments like about who will sit at his right hand. So you literally have them lobbying who will be chief of staff when he takes over. So this is what they have. But it's like he says, oh, by the way, I know you all think you know where this movement is headed but it's actually headed towards my death. I'm going to die. You realize that. And actually, the first time he says this, one of the first times he says this, one of his um, caffeinated disciples, Peter, is like, no way, never. And that's where Jesus does the whole get get behind me, Satan, is they have images of how it works. 
And there's this shift in each of the gospels where he begins to say, oh, oh, no, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't end up with me ruling from on high on a throne with you as my cabinet. It's going to end in me essentially naked and mocked and spit upon and executed in the most shameful, humiliating way possible. So do you see how all of a sudden then a parable like this starts to tilt a little bit? Because there's a larger context, there's a larger flow here. It says almost as if Jesus is saying, I know you think it works one way. In, in this whole section of chapters, I know you think it works this way. You stand up, you puff up your chest, you win. You find some clever hashtag and you go out on top. But, but my thing is different. I'm going the other direction. I'm not saving it through winning. I'm going to do what I do through dying. <laughs> Come on, my friends. You see what I'm saying here? So there's some sort of mystery just below the surface. Now, later writers would talk about a mystery hidden in the very fabric of creation. And you and I would perhaps talk about like a, a death and rebirth mystery hidden in creation. And on your moments, your moments of growth, Let's move this to, the, to, to your life. Your moments of, of great breakthrough, those moments when you tasted something, they generally involve some sort of death, didn't they? Something died so that something new could be born. Something ended so that something new could be birthed. Right. See, there's a mystery hidden in the very fabric of creation. So most people in approaching a, a story like this, if you miss the larger flow of things, then you're left with a sort of insufferably literal lens of reading it. Basically, you're a crappy sinner, so just do more with however many talents you have. But, but I, would, I would say to you that I think there's another way to read this story. It's like you have to let it work on you. Um, you have to let it come in the side door and begin to do something else. So, so here's what I mean. The story begins with unmerited favor. This boss man entrusts servants, the lowliest boss man, who's apparently worked up a massive fortune, is going to go away and so the man at the top, the boss man, who's worked and worked and worked to amass some, probably exploited, maybe he's a, who knows what kind of boss he is. Well, actually, we do get some clues about what kind of boss he is. But he has amassed some massive amount of money. He's going away, and he entrusts it to the lowest of the low. Here, have all of my wealth. So the incident... The instigating incident of the story is a grace, a gift, blessing, abundance. The thing that sets everything in motion is the owner giving everybody massive sums of money to do something with. And apparently they didn't earn it. There, he just passes it out according to some standard he has. The one translation says according to their ability. He has some idea about why he has handed it out to them 
those different portions, but he doesn't ask them to be productive, and he gives them no quotas or rules or boundaries. Apparently, the only rule is to do something with it. So the owner has this tremendous abundance, and what he does with the abundance is he passes it on to the lowest and the least among him. (laughs) Come on. Are you starting to feel this? It's an absurd premise. It's as if he just rolls the dice. It's as if he's a it's as if he's gambling. The risk in this story. The story begins with massive risk. And the reason we one of the many reasons you know this is because he says to the one bag dude, we'll just call him one bag dude for now, at the end when he's furious with him, he says, "You could have just given it to a banker." And at least then I would have gotten a little interest. So he could have put it with some sort of banking system and he would have come home and there would have been more than when he left. But he doesn't do that. He rolls the dice on servants. He rolls the dice on their participation in the grace, blessing, favor, and gift. There's risk baked into the whole thing. And the owner is not only fine with the risk, but the owner embraces it and celebrates it. Because when he comes home and two of them have taken their participation and actually increased the abundance, what he says is, come share in my happiness. So not only does he begin with here, participation, Here's my wealth. Here's my wealth. Apparently do something with it. But when he comes home and they've done something with it, what he then does again is another round of participation. There's risk baked into the whole thing. And the risk is based on participation. I know. It's so... So let's back up then. What kind of world are we living in? Because for the world to be a world... It actually has to be a world. That's the terrifying thing about love, money, politics, creating things. It is anytime you act, anytime you move, anytime you step towards another in love, anytime you elect somebody to office, there's a chance that the whole thing will go belly up. There's a chance that they'll make a mess of things. There's a chance they'll break your heart. By the way, last week, the first night of tour was Tucson. So I have this whole new talk thing I'm doing. I I was right back there again. Like, oh my word. I had had such giant, I get giant butterflies before I speak. And I was thinking, "I I do this voluntarily. I cook something up and then I go out hoping that it works, just like a right back in that place of making something and then sharing it. And it might go well, it might not, but participation is the thing. You have so little control over the outcomes or maybe just no control over the outcomes, but you can participate. And I'm talking to those of you who run businesses. I'm talking to those of you who have kids. I'm talking to those of you who make things. Yeah, the joy is in the work. The joy is in the participation. 
And in this story, boss man wants everybody to participate. And when they do participate, his response is, hey, participate even more in my happiness. But for the world to be a world, it actually has to be a world. Risk is baked into the whole thing. And so the way that this story begins is risk. It ends with risk, but the risk is deeply connected to participation. That's what the owner is interested in. Them participating in the absurd, over-the-top, superabundant gift of grace that he passes along to them. Now, uh, a couple thoughts on judgment, then absence, then we'll talk about absurdity, and then a thought about acceptance. Judgment, absence, absurdity, and acceptance. Okay, first then, judgment. The owner is furious at the end of the parable. He's, or he, he is righteously pissed off at one bag gold dude. One bag of gold dude, right? <laughs> Who basically takes his bag of gold and just buries it. Or uh, another word that, that might get closer to it is he's, he's deeply offended. One bag of gold dude goes, buries it. And then when the owner comes home, and says, well, what'd you do with it? And he says, well, I buried it. And then his explanation is, uh, da, 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 da. the explanation is, I knew that you are a hard man. Okay, really? Some translations, he says, I thought you were cruel. He did. Is there anything in your reading about this parable? Is there anything that tells you that the owner is cruel or hard? No. You did? You thought I was cruel? That's what you got out of this. What? Where did he get this idea? Because nowhere in the story do you get the image of a hard man who is ruthless. What you, the image in the story is the opposite of that. This owner is the kind of owner that gives servants massive sums of money with apparently very few rules about what to do with it. And then when he comes home, just wants them to share in his happiness. So one bag of gold dude fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the owner. By the way, side note, what kind of universe are we living in? Is life... Uh, an adventure that you get to go on or is it a trial that you have to endure? Is, uh, is reality at its core dark and then there are occasional little shafts of light that break through for a moment or two or is it at its core light and the dark is temporary and passing? Or like the poet Rilke said, to be here is glorious. Is it, is it glorious to be alive? Because of course, in the midst of this gift that we all know to be life, there's every kind of sweat and blood and struggle and pain and joy imaginable. But is it a cruel hoax? I mean, are the cynics right? Or is it glorious to be here? You see, it is your life. It, is it this thing that you just have to put up with? Or before anything else can be said about you, are you the recipient 
of an extraordinary, abundant, over-the-top gift. Is even the breath you just took and the breath you're about to take a gift? Yeah, the people I've met who seem most alive, who, who seem to be thriving at, at, at some level, they always have this, this uh, stance, this posture that's like, uh, can you believe this? <laughs> like, can you, can you believe this? Like, a, there, there's some sort of deep wonder and awe. And it's not people who haven't suffered or been through unspeakable tragedy. It's just if you keep peeling down the layers at the base of it, you get to, to some rock-bottom decision they made to live with wonder and awe. And then everything gets filtered through that. Because one bag of gold dude misunderstands the nature of the owner. Or, or maybe to be more accurate or more articulate, uh, he refuses to believe that the owner is really like that. Now, uh, maybe you, if you have a problem with God language or the idea of it, hang with me here, uh, because uh, perhaps the universe, how it all works, the deepest, deepest, deepest of reality, however you want to say that, what are we living in? Um, because the judgment on the one bag of gold dude is what seems to really crank up boss man, the owner, is, yeah, he just buries the, the money. He actually, though, still has the one bag of gold. So it's not a loss. It's just not a gain. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a loss of what he could have done with it. But it's but what seems to crank up the owner is about how he sees the owner. Um, so what's interesting with uh, when this is read as a parable of talents in which you better do something with what you've been given or God is going to be angry is the, the interpretation then, and sometimes the very hyper-spiritualized interpretation is that God is one more demanding, easily angered taskmaster. And so obviously the end where the owner just goes off reads into that interpretation, but I would argue that's a misreading of the story. Um, the very the point of the story is this is not one more demanding, easily angered taskmaster. This is somebody saying, look at what I've given you. All that's left for you to do is trust that I'm really that good. Trust that the gift is really a gift. And the only thing that's interesting is you trusting and then participating in some way. Now, for many people, the moment you talk about judgment the only way they've ever heard judgment talked about is for something that happens someday when you die. Um, but I would actually read the parable and read the judgment of the parable as something that happens now. Because judgment is, in essence, exposure. It reveals what has been true the whole time. Judgment is consequence. Um, I would argue that the judgment, that the severity of the parable is... You don't trust the owner. You refuse to participate in the extravagant, over-the-top grace and gift, and you will miss out on the joy and happiness right now. It's like an urgent call to live in the abundance and the joy now, because otherwise you miss out on it now. You live stingy and it comes back on you right now. You live with your fears 
ruling your life. You live in your smallness. You live in your uptightness. You live in your rule keeping. You live in your obsession with being right. You cling to your scorecard and continue to prove to everybody around you how diligent and righteous and whatever it is that you are, you will miss out on the joy now. (laughs) Are you with me on this? Is anybody anywhere posturing and posing on the internet to show everybody how great, beautiful, thin, accomplished, cool they are? Is it making anybody anywhere actually happy? Or is it just making everybody compare themselves to everybody around them all the more and making people miserable in the process. Come on now, are you with me on this? Yeah, that, it's judgment, but it's a different kind of judgment. It's an urgent wake-up call to enter into the deep, abundant mystery now, or you miss the joy now. I cannot tell you how often I'll be doing a Q&A and somebody, they'll ask a question, and in the first four or five words of the question, I pick up so much anxiety and negativity and shame, I don't even have to know the rest of the question to know why the person's miserable. Do you know what I mean? People will raise their hand and they'll say like, well, now this question's probably stupid, but okay. If it's a question, it can't be stupid. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Because a question is rooted in a desire to know. It's rooted in a humility. A question is rooted in a hunger and a thirst. How is that stupid? Or I mean, people have said, you know, I always screw stuff like this up. Uh, I just make a mess of things. But I, hold on, hold on. You've already hardwired the system for a stingy, cruel, small world. You've, you've already rigged the system against yourself. You're already miserable. So uh, when Jesus tells the story, it's a, it's a loud, harsh, it's got serious edges to it story about how people respond to a massive, extravagant gift. Do you trust it and enter into it and participate Believing the owners really like that? Or do you hold on to your own story? Do you make up some story about how you've decided it is and go and bury the thing? See, it's way less about one bag of gold dude burying his bags of gold than it is his deep fundamental refusal to trust the story that's unfolding right in front of him. Beliefs matter. How you see the whole thing deeply shapes how you live in it. So, uh, man, those of you trying to keep a job, pay some bills. Those of you trying to help teach some kids to read. You're in healthcare, law. You're trying to end some suffering. You're trying to create something. Your parents, you're trying to raise a kid. Um, Man, you get to do this. You get to do this. You get to do this. And the messages you send yourself about the nature of the gift will deeply shape how you live it. Man, there is this thing that can get in our heads about doing it right, about getting it right. 
about being productive enough, about making sure that we're efficient. But this story, this owner is participating in some larger flow. He's come into all of this blessing and wealth, and so he is now passing it around, and he wants these servants to share in his happiness. So picture it. It's like a circular flow, and he's simply, in response to the flow to what has come his way, he's just passing it along, and then he's inviting others to enter into it, and whatever comes their way, for them to pass it along. And what one bag of gold dude does is he stops the flow. He doesn't keep it going. He literally buries it. So, uh, if you're a boss, um, if you've got students, if you've working in an office, if you're surrounded by people and all these things, if you move to a view of things in which you see yourself as receiving, and then the only interesting thing is for you to pass it along. If you begin with the grace of this completely ridiculous, absurd, over-the-top gift and all you're doing is just passing it along. Oh, you see what I'm saying? Everything begins to shift. That's why the judgment is so severe at the end, is how we respond and how we see it and understand it and what we believe about it has immediate consequences for how we live and how we, how we deal with others. Grace... It's just about participation. The grace is about being alive. It's about the next breath. The grace is about having some skin in the game. It's not winning the game. It's not defeating your adversary. It's participation. Oh, by the way, really interesting thing happening here. The owner is gone for a good chunk of the parable. But it's the owner's act of a giant gift of grace that instigates the whole thing. So the owner is absent, but the owner at some level is present. The owner's effects, the owner's presence lingers in everything that's happening, even though the owner has gone on a long journey. Maybe you could just say that faith is the absence in the presence. Yeah, it's what you do when it's not sitting right in front of you. It's what you do when you get glimpses, hints, surprises, little bursts of light. See, the, the parable then is there is this mystery of grace that is lurking just below the surface. And the question is whether, whether the servants, will they trust that? Or because the owner's gone, will they cling to some other story? Yeah, what do you do... Uh, in the absence, in the presence, the presence in the absence. Oh, man. Oh, by the way, Jesus has had to do his death, right? He's going to die. When you know you're going to die, what kinds of things do people, when you've been around people who are going to die, what did they talk about? Like when you were around people, like let's say they were dying of cancer and they knew they only had a little bit of time to live, were they saying things like, hey, you owe me $37? No, no. What do people talk about? 
What do people talk about when they're dying? Oh, what a gift. What do they say to the people around them? They talk about how much love. They talk about their great memories. They talk about what a, a joy it was to share these few years with this person and that person. Yeah, and, and oftentimes you're imparting something. So what is Jesus doing here at the end? You think about it. He's trying to instill in his disciples some other alternative way of viewing the whole thing. So how does he do it? He tells them a haunting story about a presence in the absence, about a grace at work, about the importance of participating in the grace so that you don't miss out on it. I, uh, my beloved friend Pete Holmes, you all know Pete Holmes, um, must have been a year or two ago, he had this uh, interaction with a spiritual leader, and he was talking to me about it later, and he was, it just had been a little funky, and he was like sort of unsettled by it, so he was sort of processing it with me, and, and I was like, ask, I was asking him questions, well, why did it bother you, or why did that guy's attitude, what was it that sort of got under your skin? And then he said to me, um, you know what it was, he said? It was like the guy was playing with scared money. <laughs> How great is that? He's like, it's like he was playing with scared money. Yeah. Because yeah, it's a ridiculous story. It's almost as if it's a joke or a gag that the whole, the boss entrusts his wealth to the lowest of the low servants. That's the nature of the boss's heart is all of his hard-earned wealth and empire he just hands to his servants he trusts them to do something with it, with very, apparently very few guidelines or rules. This boss man is not playing with scared money, right? <laughs> right? And one bag, of gold, uh, one bag of gold dude, he can't accept that it really works this way, so he misses out on the whole thing. Here's the truth. If you live like this, like you are the recipient, like, it's, like you're in on the joke. Because that's what grace is. Grace is all of what you thought was earning you something wasn't. You had it the whole time. Grace is everything you were doing to prove yourself and show everybody all of these things was all a waste of effort. The thing that you were trying for, you have had the entire time. Do you see how grace has like a, it's like, are you in on the joke? <laughs> uh, I can't say that without laughing. Uh, here's the thing. If you live like this, like it really is like this, way more fantastic and bizarre and amazing things will come your way. And I don't mean this in a like manifest the secret way. I don't mean this in the positive, the power of positive thinking. I'm saying when you live like the whole thing is really rigged this way. Your eyes will be open to all that is going on around you all the time and what you've had the entire time. That's as close as a guarantee you can get in, in, a, in a teaching like this from Jesus. Um, because the owner has such harsh judgment against one bag of gold, dude, because he refuses to trust that it's really like this. And by the way, if you struggle with this, 
Um, if you're like, nah, I don't know. Here, here's, here's. Uh, I'm sure you can think of all sorts of ways that this begins to work on you. But here's something: uh, give something away this week. Something like ridiculous. Something valuable. Something that you wouldn't normally think to give away. Um, not to be productive, but simply to participate. Treat the universe like a generous, ridiculously absurd gift of grace and act like that's true and pass along what you see has been given to you. How will that not come back to you in a thousand ways you never could have planned? And especially if things feel right now like they're stretched and thin, especially right now if you are overwhelmed with your lack. It's literally like a prayer. Show me what I could pass along, how I could participate in the mystery of grace, which is the engine of the whole thing, which is often just below the surface. It's the presence and the absence. Yeah, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, this changes everything. This changes everything. And so Jesus is your, uh, he's your Messiah 101, the first part of the Gospels. He's healing, the blind see, people who have struggled with illness for years suddenly aren't struggling. He's giving these brilliant teachings. He's going from town to town, large crowds are gathering. He's literally feeding 5,000 people at a time. Yeah, yeah, it's like exactly, it's exactly from the book on how you order up a Messiah. And then it all starts to shift. And he starts talking about his death. And even his disciples are like, uh, you got to cut down on the death stuff because <laughs> that's not really what people want to hear. But then as he talks more and more, you begin to see that he's outlining a whole way that the whole thing works. It's not as obvious as you think it is. It's not as straightforward as you think it is. It's better. It's deeper. It's wider. And it's something about the nature of the whole way the whole thing works, which is death and rebirth, death and resurrection. A whole thing has to die so that a whole new thing can be born. It's like a mystery baked into the very every square inch of creation. So he starts these parables. These parables start getting these mysterious edges to them. And then Matthew 25, he busts out this truly bizarre story about over-the-top, abundant, absurd grace handed out to the least of these servants. And when they apparently do something with it, he's like, come on now, share in my happiness. How's that for an image of the way the whole thing works? Yeah, yeah. It's like, the, is the whole universe singing some song, right? And saying to you, come on, sing along, sing along. Have you seen the stars in the sky? Have you seen the Grand Canyon? Have you ridden a wave? Have you walked through the woods? Come on. Have you ever held a baby? Come on. This whole thing is shouting. This whole thing is singing. And you, all you got to do is trust and receive and then just enter in whatever that looks like. Come on. You and your bags of gold. 